Well, so one of the things I've noticed uh, is that sometimes words have a different meaning from culture to culture, depending on, you know, which way you're going and what cultures you're dealing with. Like, for example, if I stand up here and, and I use the word bloody, like here, if I say something's bloody, then I'm describing that thing as having blood all over it. You know, maybe like, hey, that animal's bloody. It got its leg chopped off, and so it's like bleeding everywhere. Or, you know, that little kid is bloody. He fell and scraped his arm or, you know, whatever. It's bloody. That's what bloody means here in our context and our culture. But if I was to say bloody from the pulpit or from the platform uh, like this in England, I'd probably get kicked off the stage immediately because that's like cussing up there, you know, saying, I don't know if you can imagine what word it'd be like here or whatever. But so different cultures mean sometimes words have different meanings. Another example would be like Australia. You know, if Australia, Barbie means something completely different there than it does here. Like if I say, hey, let's put a shrimp on the Barbie in Australia, uh, I'm saying let's put shrimp on the barbecue, let's grill some shrimp. If I say let's put shrimp on the Barbie here, y'all going to look at me like, uh, what's wrong with you? That's weird, you know, because Barbie here means doll, not like barbecue. Um, I experienced this cultural difference in the way words are defined like firsthand a couple years ago when I went to Africa. I was in West Africa, a country called Senegal, which when I signed up to go on this trip to Senegal, I thought I was signing up uh, on this trip to go to a a city called Senegal, um, but it's actually a country. I found that out later when I got there, but it's in West Africa, like the westernmost part of Africa. And and when we were there, we were working with this this people group called the Kenyagi. Everybody say Kenyagi. That's pretty good. It's kind of a weird sounding name, but we were working with the Kenyagi people. It's an unreached people group, and to get to the Kenyagi, you have to just go out in the boonies. This is sub-Saharan Africa. It's like, I mean, out in the middle of nowhere. It's National Geographic style. You know, you got the huts and all that cool stuff, and so we drive this truck out to the Kenyagi people, and we're going from village to village meeting with these people, and when when we get to the village, we would stop. We'd turn the ignition off. We'd get out, and we'd lock the car. Um, and we'd go and spend time with these people. It was important to lock the car just because, you know, we're out in the middle of, you know, a place that's literally foreign to us, and we didn't want our stuff to get messed with or taken or anything like that. So we come to this one village, though, and we stop the car, we get out of the car, and we lock the door. The problem is we forgot to turn the car off first, and so we actually locked our keys in, in the car. And so now we are locked out of our car, our only form or mode of transportation, out in the middle of sub-Saharan West Africa, okay? Can't, like, call, you know, OnStar or whatever and get some help. You just can't do that there. But we, showing how American we were, uh, through our translator, asked the people, and again, I wish I had a picture to show you, like, how in the middle of nowhere we are. We, we still had the guts to ask if they had a locksmith anywhere in town. Uh, but the funny thing is, is our translator asked the question, and... Uh, and the people with him answered and said, yeah, we do have a locksmith. So it didn't sound like that. It sounded, you know, something different, you know, in their language. But they run off saying they're going to go get a locksmith. And so our translator says, hey, just, you know, wait a few minutes. We'll come back with a locksmith. So I, th- I guess we were expecting, like, this van to pull up, you know, one of those guys that says locksmith on the side. And it's spelled L-O-C, not L-O-K, because that's cooler than L-O-C. And uh, they got a bunch of keys, and they try it and get unlocked. Well, that's not what happens. Um, <clears throat> This, uh, this man, he runs off, says he'll go get a locksmith, and about 20 minutes later, he comes back, and he's got this kid around his arm, you know, like, walking up with him, and he's got a big smile on his face, both of them do, they're excited, and, and we're thinking, huh, I guess he couldn't find a locksmith, but sure enough, uh, this 14-year-old kid that he was walking up with was apparently the locksmith, and uh, the only tool that he has is this massive screwdriver, it's about this long, and he's holding his hand, and and so he, this 14-year-old kid walks up to our, our truck, and at this point you would think we would have figured out, okay, something bad's going to happen here, and we should just figure out another way to get in our car, like break the window or something, but we didn't. He walks up to the truck, and he's kind of inspecting it. I don't know if it's because he hadn't seen one before or what, but I know, they had seen cars before. But he looks at it, he kind of looks at the keyhole, 
And as he's looking at the keyhole, uh, he all of a sudden just takes this screwdriver and with all of his 14-year-old power just jams it into this keyhole and starts kind of, hey there, you know, that's pretty snazzy little move you just pulled there, Baldwin. Way to go. So he just takes this screwdriver and he just slams it into this uh, keyhole and starts jiggling around. And we're all just sitting there thinking, oh, okay, well, I mean, if we get into the car, it's ruined now because we can't use our key. Um, So that was horrible. And then, you know, they just keep messing with it and it's scratching the car up, ruining everything around that part of the car. Eventually, um, they pry the entire door off of the car. Um, So... We got our keys, but what we realized is that uh, in America, locksmith means something completely different than out in the middle of nowhere in sub-Saharan West Africa because we were now doorless in our car for the rest of the trip. So, sometimes words can take on a different meaning from culture to culture. In the same way, sometimes words can take on a different meaning from people to people or from generation to generation. Perfect example, this morning I did the announcements uh, in, in the 11 o'clock and the 9.30 service. And uh, I don't know if y'all noticed, but the 11 o'clock service, and I don't even use this word epic very much, but I think I said it like five or six times this morning. And, and everybody in here that was 35 years or older was looking at me like, this guy's an idiot. What is he saying up there? Um, and then y'all were kind of over there, you know, giggling, but quietly, which was not giving me any help, you know. But um, another example would be like, uh, if I were to get a new car, and which that won't happen, but if I was going to get a new car, and I went to my mother and was like, hey, mom, you got to come see this car. I got it so sick. She would look at me and be like, what's wrong with your car? You know, but for our culture, sometimes we use words like epic or words like sick to describe something that's, that's really cool or really great or really awesome. Now, our parents' culture, they might instead use words like you know, groovy or hip instead to mean, the same, to mean the same thing. Knowing, though, knowing, though, that words can take on a different meaning from culture to culture. And words can take on a different meaning from people to people or from generation to generation. I can't help but ask or like wonder whether or not some of the words that we read in Scripture, whether or not we understand them now the way that they were meant to be understood then. I can't help but wonder if we think of these words and read these words the same way now that they were meant to be thought of and read when they were written then. And knowing that's a possibility that maybe we don't understand the same way, I think there's times where you have to go back and you have to look at those words and you have to like redefine those words to see if the way we understand them now is really understanding them the way they're meant to be understood then. And when I say redefine, I don't, I don't mean redefine it like change the meaning or make up our own new definition and submit it to Wikipedia or whatever it's online that you can, you know, worst reliable source on the planet for information. But what I mean when I say redefine is go back and really see the root of the word. And, and the roots of, of where it came from and, and where it began. And that's what I want to do tonight and really the next few weeks. Um, I want us to begin tonight looking at a word, and we're going we're gonna to kind of explore the meaning of this word, redefine, go back to the roots of what this word really means for the next few weeks uh, in here. And it's a word that, that we see uh, appear in Scripture over 158, 50, I don't know, 150 something times in over 150 different verses, and it's referred to a whole bunch more than just that. And the word is worship. So the question really tonight and the next few weeks is, what is worship? Now, I know that we know that worship, um, worship can, can take place in, in so many different kinds of settings. Worship can really take so many different shapes or sizes or forms. We know those things. And we know that worship can happen in, in, in big groups, medium-sized groups, small groups. Uh, worship can happen... Um, it doesn't ha- it, really, worship doesn't just have to happen like on Sunday morning in church. It doesn't just have to happen like on Sunday night at Overflow. 
We know these things about worship, but just because we know these things about worship doesn't really uh, answer the question for us, what is worship? So we've got to ask the question, what is worship? And the question I want to deal with tonight that I think will help us better understand this umbrella question that we're going to explore for the next few weeks of what is worship is the question, what causes us to worship? What, what motivates us to worship? What generates the desire within us to worship? Where does worship begin? And before we dive into the scripture tonight, I, I want to say this. I really think that the way we answer this question over the next few weeks, and even more importantly, the way that we respond to the answer to this question over the next few weeks and beyond that, can and will radically transform like the church, capital C, like the American church, the, really the, the American church, because I think there's an issue with it here in America and our culture of Christianity. But take it down to a smaller level. I think, that, I think the way that we answer this question and more importantly the way that we respond to this question will radically change and transform like this church, this ministry, overflow in, in the college ministry and the greater church that we're here and a part of. And even smaller and more in-depth and more specific than that is, I think that the way that we answer this question and more importantly respond to the answer to this question will radically change both you and both, both me. So, what is worship? What causes us to worship? And, and let me just throw this in here too. Like The reason that I think it will radically change all of this, including us, on an individual level, is because I think somewhere along the way, in the midst of this cultural Christianity that we've been immersed in, like the true meaning of this word worship has, has been lost. And it's, it's time, we've, we've come to a place where I think we need to finally understand really and truly what it looks like, what it means to be, to be worshipers, to worship. And so I think it's time that we redefine or go back to the roots of, of what this word really means. So go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now Nehemiah, it's kind of no man's land in your Bible in the Old Testament, which most of us don't read, but uh, it's back there. It's uh, after Ezra, before Esther. If you don't know where theirs are, just go to the table of contents. It's like on page 406 in my Bible. But Nehemiah, and we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context on where this story, this event that we're going to look at tonight falls, okay? But hold on, awkward moment of drink. Better. So Nehemiah chapter 8, that's where we're going to be. And here's, here's kind of a, 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 some context here. Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, all the way to Esther, uh, which kind of falls, I don't know, to, well, probably a third of the way into the Old Testament. Genesis to Esther covers the entire history of the Israelites in, in the Old Testament. And after Esther, there's a period of about 400 years or so until the Gospels pick up in the New Testament, and that history continues, okay? And then Acts begins the era that really we live in today, the era where, you know, Christ has died, resurrected, and given us the Holy Spirit. That's the era that Acts starts. So Genesis to Esther, history of the Israelites in the Old Testament, which I'll just say, as a side note, that I would encourage you to go and read Genesis to Esther because, I mean, one, it's really cool to see that history and see, uh, I, I, think, I think, one, it helps us better understand the New Testament, but even more importantly, I think it helps us understand the rest of the Old Testament, you know, because, like, all the prophets and all that, you can c come back and insert them where they fall in that history. But anyways, Genesis to Esther. History of the Israelites. Nehemiah is the second to last book of this history of the Israelites, right before Esther. And so we're, we're stepping into what's almost the end of God's chosen people recorded in history in the Old Testament. And where we fall is, I mean, you know going all the way back to like Exodus, the Israelites were held captive in Egypt. And when they're held captive in Egypt, God raises up a guy named Moses, 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 or not Moses, Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, that song. And, uh, and he uses Moses to lead them out of 
uh, captivity in Egypt and eventually all the way to the edge of the promised land. When they get to the edge of this land that God's promised to his people, uh, Joshua takes over leadership and leads them into the promised land. Then they spread out. They kind of stake their land. They conquer the area. And for a while, other than a few little things here and there, Israel is a pretty solid nation, God-fearing nation, living under God as their king. But what the Israelites begin to notice is that all these nations around them have like king kings, like human people as their kings. And they think, well, we should have a king too because everybody else does. To which God says, no, I'm your king, you don't need a king, and I'm way better than any other king you could ever have. But the Israelites insist on still having a king, so God says, all right, I'll give you a king. So you have these three kings, you got Saul, David, Solomon, and everything's okay for a while during that period, sort of, uh, until Solomon really screws up, and then this kingdom, this nation of Israel, enters into this big crisis, and it splits, okay? Uh, And so you now have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This history is, I'm, I'm not just saying it to say it, like it's important to the context here. So you have, you have this turmoil, okay, among Israel. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, they don't really get along. Fast forward a little way down the road, and both kingdoms, both Israel and Judah, continue to rebel against God, and eventually, both of them are delivered into captivity. And where we pick up in Nehemiah is these, these Israelites have been in captivity for about 70 years, and God has finally delivered Israel out of captivity and allowed them to come back to their homeland, come back to Jerusalem. And so you've got two guys that really come in and play a big part here. Two guys. One is Ezra, which is a dude, and the other is Nehemiah. Now Ezra was a key factor, a key figure that God uses to to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem. He was a scribe, kind of like a teacher. He knew the scriptures. Uh, He was a priest. He was a very highly looked upon guy in this point in Israel's history. Then you got a guy named Nehemiah, which really wasn't that important of a guy, um, but it's the guy that God chose to use to rebuild Jerusalem, specifically to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which was very important to rebuilding the rest of Jerusalem. And just to kind of show you, and I think this is a cool little side story here about Nehemiah, how maybe unimportant of a guy he was, yet God used him to do something totally miraculous. Uh, if, you, if you were to flip to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, you'd see Nehemiah's introduction. Now most of these key figures of the Old Testament get a big introduction, like Here's this guy Abraham, and you get his whole history and where he came from and his childhood and all that. But you get to Nehemiah, and it doesn't say that. You barely have a sentence. It says, it says Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Like, it doesn't even matter who he is, where he came from, and all that. It's just Nehemiah. And God still, though, used this ordinary guy to do something very incredible. So, where Nehemiah 8 picks up is Nehemiah has just led the Israelites to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, okay, and, and it was pretty miraculous how it happened. It didn't happen over this super-duper long period of time. It happened pretty stinking fast, uh, and so where we pick up in Nehemiah 8 is where the people are about to respond to what God has done for them again. They've been captive, and now they've been set free, and they're back in their homeland. So Nehemiah 8, uh, beginning in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattathiah, 
Shema, and a bunch of other dudes with crazy names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and then goes and names a bunch of Levites, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now, right off the bat, and as we're reading this, you probably picked up on this, that this is obviously a picture of of corporate worship taking place. This is a corporate worship setting, okay? These people have gathered together in a, in a group to worship. But I want you to see really how, 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 how big of a deal what's happening uh, in this picture is. I mean, tonight we are gathered together for corporate worship. But I would say that the picture that we see in Nehemiah 8 is a little bit different than what we see here tonight. And I want you to see this. Verse 1, it says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man. Now it's estimated that the, the number of people that came back, I, th- I think this is right, the number of people that came back with Ezra from captivity in Babylon was 40,000. That's the number, uh, the guess. But when I say 40,000, I'm really only referring to probably just men because they really only counted men back then. Sorry, ladies. But that's just what they did. And so you can, you can imagine if they didn't count men, they didn't count women, they didn't count children, there was probably at least double that. I would guess maybe triple that uh, there that had come back with Ezra. Okay, so maybe 100,000, maybe 120,000 people. This is a, a large group of people, and it uses this, this word all, all of them. All of them assembled uh, as one man, as one group or body in the square before the water gate. Then you skip down to verse 2, and it says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, all these people that would, that would gather, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Again, we see this word all, this all-inclusive Word And it gets a little bit more specific here with saying all the people who could understand. In other words, all the people who could maybe understand that language being spoken or, you know, when they heard it, they, they got it. They understood. Now, I would imagine, because crowds just have this thing of drawing more crowds, that there were probably people there, too, who couldn't understand. There might have been people there from other places, other surrounding nations, other surrounding, you know, I don't know. They, they see this big gathering and they come check it out because they're interested and know what's going on. So you have a large number of people. But again, in verse 4, we see more and more how big of a gathering this was. Verse 4 says, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Okay, now this is an important detail, I think, because you can tell that they knew ahead of time that they were going to have a lot of people coming. They were expecting a lot of people to come. So in preparation for that, what did they do? It says they built this platform, a stage, maybe like this. I would expect the stage was bigger than this. But here's, here's kind of what I picture. Any of y'all watched college football yesterday? Any of y'all college football fans? Like, I don't know. Okay, good. Well, yesterday was a good day uh, for college football, at least in my life, because um, UNT, they played pretty good, probably should have won, but they didn't lose horribly. Uh, Texas Tech, which is kind of my secret team that I like, 
Texas Tech uh, won. They beat Missouri, number 12 in the nation. Um, this is why the day was really good. Texas lost and got really dominated. Uh, OU lost. Um, now, A&M won, which is not good, but it was at the expense of OU, so that kind of makes it okay. So it was a good day in football yesterday. But I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a big Division I college football game before, been in a stadium with 60,000, 70,000 or more people. I went to a game of Penn State, 110,000 people there. It's crazy. It's like twice of what Texas Tech Stadium holds. But I don't know if you've been in a setting like that with that many people. That's kind of what I imagine this looked like. Um, you can imagine going and seeing a sold-out game at the new Cowboys stadium. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. Honestly, I think the best picture uh, that, that would describe what we're seeing in Nehemiah 8 is like Woodstock, except like on steroids for God. Like it would be crazy. It would be crazy huge. Now, what we're eventually going to see, though, is that, is that it's, not the, it's not how huge this moment is or how, the magnitude of this situation that's a big deal. But for now, I, I want you to get a picture of, of really the magnitude here, of really how huge it is. I'm an image guy, so I'm, I'm hoping that you're getting an image in your head of what's, of what's happening. So go back to verse 1. Verse 1 says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were, understand, who were able to understand. Verse 3, he read it aloud <clears throat> from daybreak until noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So, Ezra, as this crowd finally comes together, and they've built this platform, they've prepared for it. He walks up on stage, and he begins to, actually he was told, I mean, they, they wanted this. They tell him to go get the book of the law of Moses and to begin reading it. So he gets up there, and he begins, he begins to read it. And he says he read it from daybreak until noon. So like from the time the sun came up until it was directly overhead. And I would, I, I, would, I would just go further in, in detail. I would bet the reason they started at daybreak is because that's the point when they had just enough light to see so he could read and so he could read it for them. They probably would have started earlier, but they couldn't see. So the, as soon as they had enough light to read, they start and they read until lunchtime. That's like six hours long. So for six hours, he reads from the book of the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's a detail in there I think is very interesting that it says, it says at the very end of verse 3, it says, And all the people listened how? Attentively. For six hours. <laughs> now this is, this is a pretty, I think, a pretty incredible picture. And it's about to get even more incredible than that. But, I mean, just as is, a mass of people have gathered for six hours straight, listening attentively to the Word of God. And when... When I say the Word of God and we say the book of the Law of Moses, I'm not talking about like the exciting books of the Bible like the Gospels or Acts or Romans or crazy Revelation. I'm talking about like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, books that like we're scared of that we probably haven't even read, some of us, you know? Like, and yet they listened attentively to this for six hours straight. Statistics say that the average American um, has an attention span of like 20 minutes. So like... Uh, you know, for those of you who are average in here, I've probably already lost you anyways. But these people listened for six hours straight. It's crazy. Let's look at verse 4. This picture is about to get even crazier. Look at verse 4. 
It says, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him were all those dudes with the weird names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Now, I imagine that before Ezra goes up on this platform, it's kind of like the beginning of a concert. I know many of you have been to a concert in here. And before the concert, you know, the, the stage is there, the set is there, you know, you got all the instruments out, and there's just this feeling of anticipation of what's about to happen. And what kind of feeling goes through your body when you see, you know, a lot of times the lights are turned out or kind of dimmed, and so when the band comes up on stage, you just see these shadows come up. What, what feeling kind of goes through your body when you see that happen? I mean, you just get, you, there's an adrenaline rush, you know? You get, like, really excited because you're about to see Taylor Swift or, you know, whoever you like. You know, you're about to see this musician. I said that for you all, not for me, okay? Uh, but uh, you're about to see this, this person that you've been wanting to see and anticipating seeing up there for a long time. And so I picture in this moment, I know they weren't there for Ezra. They were there for what he was going to read. But I imagine that as he walks up on this stage, all of a sudden this rush of anticipation like goes through their body. You know, that lactic acid drops into their legs and they're excited. And it says, what does he do once he gets up on this platform? What does he do? It says he takes this book of the law of Moses and he and he opens it up. Now, I, for whatever reason, I, every time I read this, this is how I picture this happening. I picture him, I picture this book of the law of Moses being like one of those old school, massive Bibles that, you know, old school churches would set on the platform in front, you know, like that weighs 50 pounds or whatever. So I picture him, you know, coming up here with this oversized book and he, you know, kind of shoves it up on the, on the thing and he opens it up, you know, and then he, he starts to, you know, read and it's like, I mean, that would be weird, you know, turning these big old pages and stuff, but so he opens this book and... And what, what happens as, as he just, I mean, he hadn't even started reading yet. What happens as he begins to open this, open this book? It says the people, people all stood up. Now, why? Like, why do you think, I mean, he hadn't even started reading yet, okay? I mean, y'all didn't do that when I got up here and opened the Bible. Y'all sat down. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think that they stood up? I think the reason that they stood up is because they recognized that the book that he was opening contained the very words of God. And so when he opened it, they stood. They stood in awe. They stood in reverence. And they stood out of respect for who this God is and how important his words are. I mean, honestly, it might as well have been God standing up there speaking to them, not just Ezra with the word, in the, in the way that they responded. I mean, it might as well have been God. And it doesn't say this, but I would bet that they stood for all six hours as he stood there and he read from the book of the law of Moses. Look at verse 6. A little bit more detail. It says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It says, then Ezra praised the Lord. And when it says this, I'm not sure exactly if it's meaning he was singing songs of praise or if he was shouting, you know, he'd be reading and be like, oh, that sounds cool. Woo, amen, you know. Or if, um, I don't know, if simply by reading the scripture, they're considering that he was praising the Lord. But regardless of what it means for what Ezra was doing, um, I'm going to go shut this door over here. So regardless of what 
regardless of what, uh, what Ezra was doing, look at what the people were doing. When he was reading the scripture, it says, uh, let's see here, what does it say? It says, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people responded by lifting their hands, first of all, which I know in the Baptist world is kind of like, that's a little edgy to do that, to lift your hands. And then even more edgy in our world, they were shouting their own praises. Amen. Woo! Yeah, get it, Ezra, as you read that. And then it says, not only that, but they're bowing down all the way to the point of falling with their faces to the ground. Now think about this. The only time we might see response like this is not really in a setting like this. I mean, come on, like concert or football game or, I mean, you, you, you picture a stadium full of 50, 60, 70,000 high school girls and Justin Bieber walks out on stage, what is going to happen? Man, they're going to go crazy and we're going to have a Nehemiah 8 happen all over again because these girls are freaking out over Justin Bieber, which, whatever. There's a, there's a story of, and this is actually a true story, LSU football, um, their stadium holds like 93,000. And uh, I don't remember what game it was, but a few years ago, at one point in the game, everybody just went crazy because I think they won or something. And, and a couple like roads over, blocks over, in one of their buildings, they had this machine that, for whatever reason, they had a seismic, isn't that what it's called, like a seismic machine that, that measures seismic activity? And... It got so loud in the stadium that it registered on this machine as an earthquake. You can Google that. I promise you it's a true story. And so, like, that's the only time we might see people uh, respond like this. But why don't we worship like this? I mean, think about that. Why don't we worship like this? And I have a feeling that maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, it's really not cultural for us to worship like that here in our culture. Well, false. Because we do worship like that when we go, that's what you're saying. Yeah, we do worship like that though. I mean, when we go to these football games, we do that. When we go to concerts, we do that. But we don't do it for God. So you got to ask the question, why? And as you read on, verse 7, it says, The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. I just want to explain probably what's happening here. It says, um, it says, as Ezra read from the book, these Levites, I would guess they're probably doing two things as he's reading. One is, I mean, Ezra's in front of at least 40,000 people, probably 100 to 120,000 people. And this is ancient Israel, so he doesn't have microphone or a cool little thing like this or Garth Brooks, you know, his old school thing that was huge in front of his face or, or he didn't have a, you know, he didn't even have electricity. And so for him to communicate to 100 to 123,000 people would be really hard. He might be able to yell for a little bit that far, but for six hours straight, I don't think so. So what I think is happening here in verses seven and eight is the Levites have probably either built little platforms throughout the crowd or they're just standing out in the crowd. And it's kind of like a game of telephone. As they hear Ezra speak, they're basically repeating further down the line what he's saying so that the rest of the crowd can hear. And then on top of that, as Ezra's reading from the book of the Law of Moses, they're, they're then it says they're translating, but I don't think it's language to language. I, I think he's just, or they are just trying to help the people understand what it means. Okay, so I mean, kind of like what we're doing right now. We're looking at this, reading it, and then translating it, making sense out of it. So that's what's happening there. Then verse 9 says this. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. 
Don't mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. As the, as the people heard the book of the law of Moses being read, what did they do? They began to weep, like a.k.a. cry. And it's not just the women who were crying. The dudes were doing it too, which I know is like totally against the rule and totally not what we're supposed to do. But guys, girls alike were weeping. They were crying as they understood what was being said to them in the book of the law of Moses, which you think about it, they hadn't, they'd been ca- in captivity for a while, so they probably hadn't had a whole lot of exposure to this stuff. And so they're hearing it now, and as they understood it, they began to weep. Why? Why do you think they were weeping? I mean, remember back to where they had been. I mean, beyond their most recent captivity, they were captive in Egypt. Then they rebelled, and they were thrown into captivity in Babylon. They had been totally and completely unfaithful to God, who had been totally and completely faithful to them multiple times already. So then, after they had been completely unfaithful to him multiple times already, they were delivered into captivity, and now they've just been set free by God. And so in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. And by his love, he set them free. And that's why they were weeping. So if you remember from the beginning, it says that Ezra read from daybreak until noon. Well, at this point, verse 9, verse 10, it's now noon. And so Ezra's done reading the scripture. So what is their response after Ezra was finished reading? After Ezra was finished reading the scripture, what did they do? I know what I would do. I mean, I think about church on Sunday mornings. After church, I go eat lunch, and what do you do immediately after Sunday lunch? You take a nap. Yep, I didn't do that today, and that's why I'm a little bit cranky, so watch out. Um, I said that kind of weird, didn't I? But what did they do after they finished worshiping for six hours that day? Go look at verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites called all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They went away after worshiping for six hours and they worshiped some more. After six hours of reading scripture, standing, if they weren't standing, they were probably bowing down to their face, to their knees, whichever. And after all of that, and they were let go from that worship gathering, they chose to continue worshiping. It says they ate and they drank together. They came together, they fellowshiped, which I think we do a pretty decent job of doing that together, you know. But then it says, not only that, they prepared meals. Specifically, they prepared meals for people who needed them prepared for them. They prepared meals for people who couldn't prepare meals for themselves. They prepared meals for like the poor or the disabled. or uh, I'm sure that list could grow. And then it says they celebrated. They threw parties in the name of the Lord. After six hours of worshiping, the only thing that they could think to do was to worship some more. That's crazy. I mean, these first 12 verses of Nehemiah, I think, turns out to be one of the most incredible pictures of worship, corporate 
worship that we see in all of Scripture. I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say that, but I mean, you search the Scripture. I don't see anything else as crazy as this until you get to Revelation. This is an incredible, incredible picture. But that was only one day. If you skip down to verse 18, listen to what it says. It says, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They did this like every day for a week. A few years ago, I had the opportunity, um, I was in New Orleans. And when I was in New Orleans, I had the opportunity to meet a guy named, named Mel Jones. I want to share his story real quick with you. Mel Jones uh, used to be a real prominent dude in New Orleans. Um, he, uh, he had his own radio talk show. He had his own, uh, he was helping lead uh, this campaign for one of the government, uh, one of the guys that was running for governor who ended up becoming governor. He owned a bunch of clubs, owned a bunch of restaurants. He, he was doing well. And at one point, he got into crack cocaine. Well, after he got into crack cocaine, he lost everything, and he ends up in Georgia at this recovery center. I mean, he, he lost everything almost his life. And while he's in Georgia, he comes to know the Lord. He, he, I mean, literally was transformed by God and his grace through Jesus. And so after that, he decides to move back into New Orleans and start a ministry to people who were just like him. And so I met him uh, about two years, I think, after he had started this ministry. And it's, it's, it's a ministry, originally it was just for men. Now he has a ministry for women as well. But just for men who, uh, he would take off the streets who were dealing with addictions, whether it was drugs, alcohol, or anything else. Uh, and he take them into this house, and they overcome their addictions. And the story's really cool. I mean, the, the ministry's really cool. The recovery rate's incredible. But um, <clears throat> whenever I go down there to New Orleans, I'm in seminary at New Orleans, so when I go down there, I go down there about twice a year. I try and see these people. I try and go uh, spend some time with them. And it's kind of become, I don't want to say tradition, but something I get to frequently do, and that's go worship with these guys. Every morning uh, at 530, I'm not there that early, but every morning at 5.30, they get up, and right now, well, last time I was there, they had over 70 guys in this ministry. Um, at 5.30, all 70 of these guys would come into one room, and they'd sit there from 5.30 to 7, and they would study the Bible. Now, I mean, just that picture alone is incredible, because these are, you got, you got white guys, black guys, Asian guys, uh, Mexican guys, people from all different backgrounds. They're all off the street, and in any other setting, they probably would try and kill each other, and yet... In this room, they're sitting there dead silent, digging into the scriptures for an hour and a half. But then at 7 o'clock, they, they kind of have a worship time. And, uh, and Pastor Mel will get up, he'll teach them a little bit. And then they sing some songs. And on this particular Friday that I went for the first time, this is how it is pretty much every time, <clears throat> it was so awesome. It was one of the most incredible worship, worship experiences I had ever had because we're sitting there, and then this guy gets up who's part of the group, but he's apparently their worship leader too. He gets up and he says, Stand up. And so all seven of these guys stand up, and I'm kind of, you know, all right, stand up. And uh, he says, we're going to sing uh, hymn number 720 whatever. And they didn't have hymn books, but they had printed them or copied, made copies, and so they're all holding copies. And he still, I thought it was funny, he still says, we're singing hymn number whatever, and you only got one hymn in front of you. But, and it's some old school, you know, hymn out of a Baptist hymnal. And then he turns to the guy next to him who's up there helping him lead worship, and he says, uh, let's get some music. And so this guy, he doesn't go sit down at a piano. Uh, he doesn't go sit down at an organ. He pulls out, he rolls out basically this big old marching band bass drum. One of those things that's, you know, like that. Except he rolls it out and he kind of leans it up against his shins or his, you know, whatever this is. That's not my shins. Whatever that is right there. Thighs. Yeah. 
and he leans it against uh, his thighs, and, uh, and all of a sudden, he just whips out, like, this street beat that was awesome. I mean, he just starts, you know, boom, 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 boom. And, I mean, they're going, they're going. I mean, everybody's kind of in there, you know, just kind of getting their, you know, the groove. And I'm, I'm in there, like, hopefully I wasn't doing that when I just did. But. And they start to sing this old school hymn to the tune of this bass drum. And I, I can't tell you how powerful of an experience it was. Uh, I mean, you have 70 guys whose lives have com- been completely changed and transformed. And they're in there singing at the top of their lungs, hands raised. Some of them are tearing up. They're shouting. They're into it. And one of the coolest things I saw was there was a guy, it was his first day to worship with them, and he, was being, he had been admitted to this program. And, uh, and just, just for a picture, it's not like this nice building that they worship in. They're in the middle of a crack neighborhood, and they've just taken over uh, some old buildings in there, and it's all falling apart, I mean, but they're still, like, loving it. And this one guy, it was his first day to worship with them, and you could see at the beginning, he was very tentative, like he didn't know what was going on and kind of freaked out. But as he watched these guys around him worship, like, with all their heart, you could see it literally change him as, he's, as, as, they're, as we're worshiping and as he's standing there. And by the end, I mean, he was still kind of uncomfortable, but you could literally see, I mean, he, it got to a point where, not out of awkwardness, but out of, he just started to feel it, like he started to sing too. It was incredible to see them worship and hear these guys cry out to God like the word, nothing like we do here. And, and nothing like most of us, I would say, has ever really experienced in worship. And so the question I, I, I guess I come to is why? Like, why were they so passionate in how they worshiped? And there's a few thoughts I have on that. One is they believed in God. They had experienced God's powerful transformation in their life. Two, they knew God. They pursued him passionately, daily. I mean, immersing themselves in God's word and in prayer. And then three, because they loved, they loved God. They loved God because of what he had done for them and in them. And because they loved God, that's what compelled them to worship. Worship is a, is, is a reflection of real faith in God. It's a, it's a, real, it's a reflection of, of belief in the Lord. Worship is a natural response that comes from truly knowing him. And the Israelites worshiped God because they knew him. And again, they, they knew him because they had experienced him and his deliverance in their lives and their parents or grandparents' lives from Egypt and then in their own lives from Babylon. And then he's allowed them, they experienced him as he allowed them to build the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites knew God, they'd experienced him, therefore they worshipped him. But worship goes so much deeper than that. Worship is, is deeper, goes deeper than just a reflection of us knowing God. Worship is the natural response to that we have from the, from the love feelings and the affections that we have, have for God. And that's why the Israelites worshipped God. That's why these guys in New Orleans worshipped God. I mean, an example here. I mean, think about this. I know, I don't think anybody here is married, but some of y'all are dating. Um, if you're not dating somebody, you've dated somebody before probably. If you haven't dated anybody before, well, maybe one day. But think about this. Those of you who are dating people or maybe engaged why is it that why is it that you treat your special person the way that you treat your special person? Think about that. And then think about this, like why 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 do you take them out on romantic dates? 
Hopefully you do that, guys. But why do you do that? You know, why do you want to do that? Girls, why do you want to go out on romantic dates with this dude? It's not just to be a gold digger and take his money. Like, you want to, you know. I mean, guys and girls, why do you like to, you know, cuddle up next to that person on the couch and watch a movie? You shouldn't be doing that. But, I mean, why, why do you have that desire, you know? Why do you like telling other people about this person that you care so much about, that you're dating or you're engaged to or maybe one day going to marry? It's not just because you know them. I mean, I know Brian, but I have absolutely no desire to go out on a romantic date with Brian. <laughs> the reason that you have these feelings for these people is because you have love feelings and affections for them. And worship is the way that we naturally respond to the love feelings and the affections that we have for God. That's what worship is. That's where it begins. That's where it comes from. And the Israelites worshiped God because God had captured their hearts. And these guys in New Orleans, they worshiped God because God had captured their hearts. In so many cases, I feel like we come to worship. I, th- I think this is what happens a lot. We come to worship either with like wrong motives or we come to worship not really even knowing what worship is. And if the, if the origins of the, of the church's worship, if the origins of our worship came from, from our love feelings and our affections instead of maybe a misunderstanding of what it is or wrong motives, I think we would see this ministry, this church, the church radically transformed. The church would be drastically changed. Its influence in society would grow and spread, and it would, it would grab a better vision for outreach and missions, more widespread vision for that stuff. I mean, you could go on and say a few other things, but ultimately each of us individually would be totally changed. And so as we begin like to to redefine worship. I think it really comes down to this simple question. Has God captured your heart? Because we see that that's where it begins, is like love, affections, and feelings, and Him capturing our heart. So then we got to ask the question, well, how has He captured our heart? Has He captured your heart? I mean, just like the Israelites were held captive, we too have been in a place of captivity. And some, some in here may still be in a place of captivity, captivity to sin and death. But yet in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God has delivered us from that through Christ. And those of us who have already been delivered from it, God continues to deliver us from that sin and death in the midst of our unfaithfulness. So the question is, has God captured your heart?